This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. DMV Download, the new daily podcast from WTOP News is out now. Hosts Megan Clorty and Luke Garrett get the story behind the story. Every weekday afternoon, Megan and I will go beyond the headlines with WTOP reporters and sources to bring you more on the biggest local stories impacting you, our fellow Washingtonians. The DMV Download podcast is available now on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. The DMV Download podcast is presented by Steamfitters Local 602. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Alex Garland's new sci-fi horror flick, Men, opens in movie theaters this weekend, released by A24. I spoke to Garland in 2015 during the release of his sci-fi thriller breakthrough, Ex Machina. Alex Garland. Alex, it's a thrill for you to be in here. Thanks so much for uh, coming on WTOP to talk about your new movie, Ex Machina. It's not only brilliant science fiction, but it's also a really engaging, sometimes creepy thriller, but it poses some profound questions and even a little romance all rolled into one. So uh, hats off on that. This is your directorial for a feature, right? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, I've been working film for about 15 years, but yeah. Right, right. Whenever I have a filmmaker and I like to kind of see the career trajectory, how we got to the film first. Gotcha. Um, so I know for you, um, you know, you, you wrote the novel for The Beach, right? Mm-hmm. Worked with Danny Boyle with that. Um, and then you wrote the original screenplay for 28 Days Later. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of came at it from a, a different perspective. But how did working with Danny plant seeds that maybe I want to direct as well? Uh, I'm not really sure it did. I mean, I like you said, I, I used to write books and then uh, I sort of transitioned from... Uh, books into film and uh, it wasn't so much working with Danny it was it was the whole thing it was working with a crew and working with actors and um, uh, actually in a way as a writer my primary relationship was with uh, a producer Uh, writers and producers often have a particular bond because they're the people that start a project Mm. Um, uh, a writer writes a script and then the first person on board is a producer and and usually the writer and producer sort of back the thing backwards and forwards for a while and then a director is attached uh, way down the line. And, um, uh, but, but really, it was just the whole thing of working on film. I enjoyed it. It was collaborative and um, uh, wanted to keep doing it, I guess. Um, in terms of um, the way it's directed, um, for instance, a particular scene, um, it's after one of the first power surges when the power goes out. And um, it's the first time the AI says, don't trust Oscar Isaac's character. Yeah. Um, the scene that directly follows that where Oscar Isaac's talking to the protagonist, um, you know, and, and this is that first hint where we, the audience, know something that Oscar Isaac may not. Yeah. Um, 
that's it, it's sort of shot like this master shot sequence, but immediately pop in for the close up there. There's little little things like that where I can, you know you can see that you you know I mean that's you working with the editor too, but you can really see there's a a strong director at work, and he's got that weird animal head hanging behind him, a little creepy mise en scene like he's being watched. I mean, how do you go about constructing a scene like that? Do you do you decide oh, that's where I want my close up, or is that more in the editing room? Well, well, partly it comes from having spent a lot of time in an edit and thinking on previous films, man, I wish we had a shot of this or I wish we had a shot of that. And, mm -hmm. and then you carry that forwards and you learn as you go. But um, in terms of the actual process of shooting a scene like that, uh, it's, I mean, basically what you do is you, you've got the script, everyone agrees what they're trying to do and what the place looks like and you know where you are and uh, the sort of basic plans. Then you get the actors in the space and probably that's the first time they've been there. And uh, you just rehearse it and you, you block the scene, which means largely the actors block the scene. They decide here I'm going to stand up or here I'm going to reach for that glass of wine, or whatever yeah. it happens to be. And then really it's, it's an open conversation initially with the DOP, the, the two of you, the director of photography, you've been watching how the scene played out and you've, everyone's made their adjustments. And then you think, so what's the right feeling? What, you know, maybe, and this could be Rob, the DOP suggesting it, or it could be me, or it could it's often very informed by what the actors have done and the sort of vibe and where they're putting gear changes. And you say, okay, well, if we're starting wide, uh, um, maybe we start to push in slowly here or dolly in or whatever it happens to be. And um, uh, typically my process is block the scene with the actors, then turn to the DOP and say, Rob, how do you want to shoot it? Right. You know. Do you view kind of your, your approach to directing kind of like what they're saying about the Jackson Pollock painting kind of, uh, you know what? What does he say? Automatic artistry. Whether whether it's you have this huge plan and you know where you're gonna put the dot, or, or do you need to maybe have a blueprint but go a little with the flow and be flexible? When, yeah, what, what? more the latter. Um, I've got I've got a clear idea in my head about what the scene is and why it's there and what the important things that we need to convey about the scene are, and then. Uh, with that knowledge, the trick then is, from my point of view, not to get too rigid and to be able to hear what people are saying and suggesting and also be able to recognize what the actors are changing and adapting. So going with the flow is, for me, a very, very big part of it. And, and I can't underscore enough, I'll use the word again, collaboration. That is absolutely fundamental to it. I think where I felt I've watched people uh, go wrong before in whatever capacity it is on a film. It's to do with not really recognizing the collaboration and being too rigid. And uh, I think the rigidity often in a way looks like it comes from fear. Uh, you, you know, you've got an idea, you're feeling very anxious, and so you want to hold on to it, and you, you can't open your mind to uh, fluidity. And I, a lot of my effort is to do with making sure I can hear a good idea when somebody else suggests it. Speaking of the collaboration, the musical score, is it an xylophone or what is that? It sounds a little close encounter sometimes with the dun dun dun. Yeah, you, so the particular instrument that's used with um, Ava to score her, the robot, is, is I think it's called a Celeste. Celeste. Um, and uh, it, it has a kind of purity about it. We can sort of associate it in some ways with like nursery chimes or right. you know noises from childhood in some respects a music box or something like that right. and um uh, and, and i think it's a way of underscoring her her apparent purity and um uh the degree to which we should trust her maybe and uh just going further down the idea of collaboration um 
the the effects of the AI. Um, how exactly was that achieved? Because it's remarkable to watch play out. Um, you know, you have a, a real face, but the face comes up higher than the the rest of her scalp, which mm. is you know robotic. And the same thing with the arms. And you know, how was that whole look? conceived uh well a, a little group of us designed ava together um uh and the way the way this is this was a 15 million dollar film and so we didn't have a lot of money to splash around but we also knew we had this huge vfx component and so one of the things we did one of the ways you can lose a lot of money in film production is to not be sure about what the vfx component is how it's going to look and to continue to adapt it and change it as you're filming i guess this is in in a way contradiction to what i was just saying <laughs> this particular thing we really needed to lock it down and right. feel very very sure right. and so basically the the we came up with the design a group of us together and then uh the vfx guys said you've got to shoot this film in six weeks which is a very accelerated shooting schedule uh you don't have time to worry about the vfx we are going to deal with it. Don't worry about it. Just shoot the actors. Shoot it as drama. There's going to be no green screen. There's going to be no tracking markers. Just shoot the people and we will swap it all out later. And what they did was they gave themselves an incredibly complex task to achieve in post-production. And what the production then did was give ourselves a very long post-production. So we never handed a shot over them Man. to say, this is one you've got to do unless we were sure it was going to be in the film. So how does Ava look on set then? You know, you they're saying just direct it with the you know block it like they're just sitting there and we'll right. add it later. So what how, what's she wearing it? So if you if you can picture the image of Ava where she has a kind of gray mesh, a solid form in some parts of her body, and then a transparent uh, sort of skeletal form in other parts of her body, the gray mesh covered her whole form. So she kind of looked like a gray Spider Man, and um, that's what she wore on set, and that that gave uh, Alicia the actress something to inhabit and feel i don't look you know i'm not just wearing jeans and a t-shirt there's something different about me and um uh and allowed her yes to sort of to get somewhere closer to that to that machine and that role and then it was really just over to the vfx guys to to do some real artistry and um create you know things where they don't exist and pluck them out of the air really equally if not more important than the vfx is sculpting her tics and mannerisms that is that slight hint of a robot but mm. it's it's still very human well that 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 was very much alicia she uh i i mean the basic thing with this movie is it's a film that puts a lot of pressure on actors i, th I think probably more pressure on actors in some respect than anybody else on the production mm -hmm. and so first and foremost we just needed top quality uh, uh actors and once we had that then uh I tried to give as much autonomy to the actors as possible to sort of inhabit the part. And Alicia came up with a bunch of ideas about Ava, which was to do with the way she'd move, which would not be robotic. It would be a kind of too perfect version of the way humans move. And, and then she added these tiny little things and she developed it as it went along. And really, uh, by the end of the rehearsal period, she had, I would say, a very complete sense of what Ava was like. It didn't, it's not like it developed over the shoot. She, she had Ava kind of uh, in her bones, as it were. And, How'd uh, you choose her to begin with? I'd seen her in this Danish movie, um, A Royal Affair, and uh, she's very, very striking. She was very young when she acted in that, probably 20 or 21. And she's acting opposite an incredibly powerful, uh, established middle-aged actor, Mads Mikkelsen, who's a you know, brilliant, brilliant performer. And yet this young girl is 
uh, is sort of owning the movie in some respects and carrying these scenes on her shoulders. And that's always striking when you see that. So I knew she was an amazing actress. And, um, and then we spoke and she reacted to the script and she said some extremely perceptive things and she put a reading of herself down on tape and it was a kind of slam dunk. But, but I have to say, even before she did the reading, I knew she was right. In a way, the reading was more just, it, it allowed the case to be made to the financiers, I think, more than to uh, me and the producers. She's got, I think she's got like four more massive movies. And, and I mean, not little indie movies like this right. one, sort of proper big movies. She's in good shape. How about Oscar Isaac? I mean, um, you know, had you seen Lewin Davis or Most Violent Year? Or, or I guess, how long had you been working on Ex Machina? Yeah, hadn't, hadn't. Uh, yeah, Most Violent Year shot after us and Lewin Davis shot before, but I hadn't seen it. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't see Lewin Davis until uh, until we'd wrapped, actually. And um, so You cast Oscar Isaac independent of both those movies. Independent of both those movies, but there is a thing that happens in the film industry where there's a, there's a, there's a lag that everybody knows these guys are good and then they land like two or three years later and that's something to do with the cycle of films. Gotcha. I knew and everybody knew at that time how good good Oscar was there was it was no secret and there were lots of people trying to get him to do other projects and so um uh, it, it wasn't like any prescience on my part at all yeah. uh it, it it looks different from the outside yeah. uh, th there's always some people that are being buzzed about who won't really land for another two or three years yeah. and of course not all of them will land that's in the nature of film but uh but he, he all of these actors were were buzzy at the time I cast them all of them just speaking of Isaac's role, um, there was a scene early in the movie where I, I thought maybe you were going to go for a big, you know, Deckard, Blade Runner, is he one of his own robot type things when, when he first mentions the Turing uh, test, I think he calls it, and he says, to see if you can tell you're working with, a, 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 speaking with AI, I was like, oh, maybe he's one of them, but um, did, did that ever noodle in your mind, or I guess it, maybe that wouldn't have spoiled the whole thing you were going for in terms No, 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 I mean, that... It was something I thought about, but not thought about as something that the film was then going to aim for, right. but more actually using it. Because I know that a sort of literate sci-fi familiar audience is going to sure. start to suspect everything because of the nature yeah. of this kind of story. And, and so there are little nudges to sort of push people towards that direction, mm -hmm. like oddly symmetrical scars on somebody's back right. or... Uh, a sort of story about a car crash that seems slightly too convenient or whatever it right. happens to be. And um, what, what that does is it serves to take attention away from some of the other things that are going on um, and to, in a way, use the literacy of the audience as a, as a, or almost like as a plot development mm -hmm. technique. Stay tuned for the rest of my conversation with Alex Garland, but first a message from a fellow WTOP podcast. DMV Download, the new daily podcast from WTOP News is out now. Hosts Megan Clorty and Luke Garrett get the story behind the story. Every weekday afternoon, Megan and I will go beyond the headlines with WTOP reporters and sources to bring you more on the biggest local stories impacting you, our fellow Washingtonians. The DMV Download podcast is available now on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. The DMV Download podcast is presented by Steamfitters Local 602. Welcome back to Beyond the Fame for the rest of my conversation with Alex Garland. And with the role of Ava, and then last year we had Under the Skin, another sci-fi movie. And well, her, where she played and her. And her, yeah, of yeah. course, the year before. What do you think it is? I mean, you said the acting things move in cycles, but do you think premise-wise and story-wise and theme-wise things move in cycles too? What's making that pop right now in this time in the universe? I do 
I do believe in zeitgeist. I remember, you know, I remember back in the 80s, there suddenly being this flood of Vietnam War movies. There yeah. was Full Metal Jacket and mm. Platoon and Hamburger yeah. Hill and they just sort of arrived. And, and, and it, yeah. it happens, it's cyclical. Um, uh, why it happens and being able to anticipate what it's going to be in another few years, that's kind of like a, a dark art. I've got, yeah. in, a, in a way, I've got no idea. <laughs> I, I suspect in the case of the AI stuff, it's, it just stems from a generalized anxiety and fear of, of tech. Yeah. Tech companies, government agencies, uh, the phones in our hand, the laptops in our office, and and yeah. feeling that these things understand a lot about us and we don't understand much about them, and and that that then gets transmuted and manifested as uh, yeah. as AI cautionary tales, something like that. We've talked a lot about as of you as a director in this movie. What about you as the writer? Um, what sparked this idea? What what got you going down this path? Um. Uh, it, it was an interest in initially it was an interest in artificial intelligence and uh, and reading up about it and trying to get my head around some of the issues to do with it. And and when you start reading about issues of strong AI, so not the AI in your phone or, or on a video game, right. but, but sort of self-aware AI, it inevitably then becomes a discussion about what self-awareness is. And that becomes a discussion about us, about what human consciousness is. And And then as soon as you've got the idea of a sort of uh, it's a it's like a perfect sci-fi conceit by looking at a robot you're actually looking at humans and then you're looking at the way humans and machines and then humans and humans interact with each other and yeah. how we establish what's going on in each other's minds or fail to establish what's going on that right. that became like a, a really interesting subject matter it felt like for a movie yeah Absolutely. I've been in AI the whole time we've been talking, and you didn't even notice. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of did. <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. That's hilarious. Um, so what, what's what's next going forward? I know um, you wrote Halo, right? Oh, no, Halo. no, I wrote that. We're talking about like 13 years ago. I was contracted by Microsoft. I wrote a script. I handed yeah. it over. Then I got sacked, and I never heard anything about it again. So it's more than more than ten years. Wow, ago. So that's been a long waiting forever. Um, and then what about you have Annihilation, right? That's a book adaptation. That's what I'm trying to set up at the moment. Yeah. So uh, tomorrow or the day after, I think I'm having a meeting with some important guy to try and get money to make that movie up. What's that one about? Uh, it's it's based on this novel by a guy called Jeff Vandermeer, and it's about a group of women that enter into a a sealed off area of North America, um, uh, sealed off by the government. Uh, to figure out and to discover what's what's happening inside, and so it's 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 about what they what they discover there, really. Cool. And there's also been rumors, maybe maybe of a 28 months later. There was a 28 days and 28 weeks. Is that is that all just speculation? Uh, the the rights for that were frozen for a long time between all the people that made the first one, which was uh, Danny and Andrew and me and Fox, and uh, we uh, decided. That, that it might be a, uh, sort of an idea to look at it. I'm not really involved in that. That's mm. Andrew McDonald, the producer, and um, gotcha. and he's yeah he's investigating. He's paid someone to write a script, and uh, I hope it's good because I get a passive payment out of it. So I'd like it to get made. <laughs> exactly, it can only benefit yeah. you. Um, is 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 science fiction something you think you're going to grapple with for the rest of your career? Um, I like sci-fi. I like sci-fi because you can put big ideas in it and not be embarrassed and right. sort of awkward about it. Right. Uh, you put some of this stuff in a thriller or an adult drama and people almost feel embarrassed. You know? Right. But, um, uh, but yeah, sci-fi gives a lot of permissions uh, and I, I like that a lot. But, you know, uh, whatever. You know, I keep thinking about political thrillers at the moment, so maybe something like mm. that. 
Do you have a favorite political thriller? Oh, I've got loads. Parallax View. All Parallax the View's Men. fantastic. All the President's Men is fantastic. Three Days of the Condor. Yeah. I do like those 70s Seven paranoid. Seven Days of May. Well, I guess that's 60s, but yeah. Yeah, but the 70s sort of paranoid, the sort of post-Watergate conspiracy thrillers are pretty fantastic. Yeah. Is that also because you can do big ideas? I mean, I think it's just because they're, they're kind of electrifying. Yeah. Like, there's something... I think I think the seventies is kind of a golden era of cinema. No and, doubt about it. Um, uh, y you were able to to get a certain kind of uh, adult drama, and a lot of people would turn up to watch it. Yeah, and um, uh, it gave a lot of fantastic filmmakers a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, I think and, if I had to put the dates on it, I'd say it was probably about sixty seven to to nineteen eighty. That like little wind because sixty seven was good. So Bonnie and Clyde, it? all that stuff. And then maybe Raging Bull in the end. But so go on. What, what, why did it all stop? I, why do you think it did? I'm I, asking you. Oh, I, <laughs> I, I think, um, I mean, I'm looking at from, you know, 50,000 feet on the other side of the coast. But um, I think it was the uh, sequel-driven 80s, man. I think, yeah. uh, I mean, I think you had some really great, you know, you had kind of Jaws, which was a great movie, kind of set it off. Star Wars also really original imagination. But great movies themselves, but spawned a culture of uh, let's just revive everything and not have more movies like Ex Machina, which is, you know, this original seed I think that's kind of where we went off the rails, but um. I think sequels. Uh, yeah, I think I would agree with that. Yeah, sequels were dangerous in all sorts of ways. I mean, yeah. it's problematic because of course some sequels are great. Right, The Godfather Empire, Part Two. And yeah, but actually, Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back. Absolutely. Is, is a, you know, the, you can make a reasonable case that that's right. that's the best of those sure. Star Wars movies sure. to date. Who knows what this new one's going to be like? But, sure. Um, so so yeah, it's not. I mean, I guess it's. There's always exceptions to the rule. Um, I don't know. I, that was my. What, what do you have a take I, on it? I think you're pretty on the money. I, that it, or put another way, the, <laughs> follow the money. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. The, the thing that underlies a lot of this is money. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you know, if you look at Exorcist or Alien, yeah, like would those films be massive movies now? I don't think they would. Right. And it's there's. The, those those are the directors that you know. It was you had Friedkin makes. You know, a French Connection wins Best Picture, but the, and then goes. Oh, and, and there's two. <laughs> there's another sequel. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. The actors just had sequels too. No, but Alien didn't French and... Connection as well. There was just this flowering of all these great filmmakers popping up, um, and uh, but also I think more of it was the audience appetite to go see it. I mean, it was. It... There was that. Uh, there's something. There's one thing I do think, and I it, it's the area that television, American television, particularly. Mm -hmm has occupied which is that there was a period where adults made films for other adults yeah and then i think increasingly what happened was adults made films for kids right now, that's a massive generalization mm -hmm. but there's a sort of underlying truth to it generally yes yeah. yeah and and when i think of the 70s films i really love they are films that are aimed basically at adults they've got right. mature themes and they've got complicated ethics and they're yeah. gray in all sorts of areas and they're not primarily visceral entertainment there's some kind of agenda going on there um and uh so you that could be the godfather or apocalypse yeah. now or parallax view or three days of the condor or whatever it happens to be <laughs> funny you mentioned apocalypse now there's i thought of colonel kurtz a little with oscar isaac just off on his little isolated little you know talking about these big themes that he's kind of you know slowly I mean, he's the only one he has in there to talk to other than these bots. But um, No, we used to talk about that too with uh, me and Oscar. I mean, really? too much time up river. And we used to talk about Kurtz. So you mentioned so, Kurtz. So oh, I wasn't yeah, yeah, just yeah. picking that up on my own. That no, was... no, no. I, absolutely, we spoke about Kurtz quite a lot. 
Nice. Maybe maybe the more maybe it's more of a Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse. <laughs> we can well, land on a fraction. You're gonna yeah yeah yeah. Well, that sort of dude but, speak stuff. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, just to wrap up, is there any way we can get that back where the film industry is making it more for for adults? Or uh, well, I think there's lots of people who are. I think the Coen sure. brothers and people, you know, uh, Anderson, and there, there are people out there. Yeah. Abs- hundred percent doing it you know i loved inherent vice and yeah uh so so it's absolutely out there but the real place it exists these days is american drama on yeah. television yeah uh, Man, sopranos all uh, that stuff if you, you get the feeling if tennessee williams was around now he'd write for american tv and it would be something like Mad Men. i mean it's so is that something you want to do television no not really <laughs> <laughs> not really i read some article the other day that that is what i was doing and i was thinking what am i i don't know that yeah, yeah. Uh, it, 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 <laughs> i i like film i like cinema i like the fact that it's kind of a short form medium like yeah. it's a story in an hour 45 contained story yeah yeah and there's there's a kind of compactness to it and it doesn't there's something about there's something scary about from a writer's point of view i'm a writer basically yeah. and writing gives you get lots of freedoms in television but man you've also come up with 700 page script yeah. and uh and i kind of prefer to write a 110 page script it's <laughs> more my speed absolutely is there anyone out there right now in the film industry then that's really you know kicking ass that you would really admire oh yeah loads i mean i i, I just said actually coen brothers and anderson yeah, and West. uh pt anderson or pt oh both right uh but but i i really loved inherent vice and uh, uh and actually um there will be blood. I thought it was a spectacular oh, piece of filmmaking. And, fantastic. Uh, so, um, the, the, oh, there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of people out there. When I see Lewin Davis, it, you know, when I finally got to see it, it really blew me away. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's it's not it's not whether it's getting made or even whether it's getting supported by financiers and distributors. It's actually audiences. Right. That's the truth. True. That's the sort of that's the underlying truth that people tend not to talk about. It's like, oh, the film industry. Blame the studio. Blame yourself. Look in the mirror. What well, are you going to see? <laughs> because people will watch it on television, but they right. don't want to go to the cinema to see it so much. And, right. you know, I, I kind of get that. I'm not apportioning blame, except actually I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can certainly blame you for a, a great, fascinating little movie here. So congratulations on Ex Machina. Thanks, man. Um, and uh, thanks for coming on WTOP. That was a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.